0: Hello, Monetization Nation! Most of the time, we have to lose money before we can make a profit in our businesses. In today's episode, we're going to discuss how we can build a successful business by focusing on quality before we focus on monetization. Tectonic shifts are constantly transforming the earth and business, causing destruction and huge growth opportunities. I'm Nathan William, the host of Monetization Nation, where we learn how to leverage business tectonic shifts to transform monetization. Evan is a world-renowned life and business strategist with a mastery in building dominant, sustainable, and purpose-driven lives and businesses. Evan is the founder and chief evangelist for the Obsessed Academy. Evan helps others build a life that they can be obsessed about through private events, hosting thousands of world changers at his obsessed conference and impacting lives on his obsessed podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Evan. Absolutely, Nathan. Thank you for having me. Uh, truly, I've enjoyed
1: our conversation so far. Enjoyed digging into the meat of everything you've offered your audience, which is it's pretty expansive, by the way. Kudos, because it's um, all you have to do is dig into a little bit of social media to see the impact that you've been having. So bottom line, I'm happy to be here, my friend. Thank
0: you for having me. And I know we're going to share a a really good conversation. Yeah, thanks for your kind words and thanks for joining us today. Mm -hmm. Okay, Uh, can you start off by just telling us something that you are super passionate about? Mm, That's a very expansive
1: and somewhat loaded question in the best way. Um, You know, ultimately, I guess the core of everything that I do comes down to this ideology that individuals deserve to be inspired, fascinated, and motivated by uh, where they live. Where they work, who they live and work with, and how they live and work. I believe that we were, <laughs> were we're here and we're put here to do more than just work at a job we hate for a boss we hate, doing things we hate and then die. And mm-hmm. so while it's come in different forms and fashions and and different, uh, I guess the word might be manifestations of of what that ideology looks like, be it business, be it some creative endeavors. Um, the bottom line is, I'm really passionate about seeing other people. Uh, become successful and lead with impact in their own lives, not in some existential like daisies and unicorns type. Oh, we can all be the best version of ourselves, but but in reality, of um, people have so much potential in them to do incredible things, impact the world around them, make money around what they're doing. Not everybody has to be begging on a on a corner and you know the starving artist. Some people, you know, there's no shame in success, um, but but doing it the right way. And and there's that fine middle ground that I believe a lot of people are are skirting around. Uh, And I'm saying, I want to fall in that trench and and, and walk along that path with you. So um, in an existential standpoint, that's what I'm passionate about. It's realized through endeavors and work and uh, caring deeply about people and being present as best I can. But that's what I'm passionate about.
0: So focusing on things that matter most and doing it in a way that you can be proud of. Very much so. All right. Could you share with us your story, your journey to become this amazing CEO that you are?
1: Mm. Um, (laughs) a lot of grace from God and a little bit of hard work, but uh, I I come from a family of entrepreneurs. So people that have built scaled businesses in the past. And so when I was young, growing up, the, the mindset was not what type of job do I get in order to earn? It was what business do I start? What service do I provide in order to be a provider? And so in my young years, I had all these little hustles and, and, uh, just whether it was selling ice cream or, you know, candy on the playground all the way to electronics in high school. And then I had a landscape business. And, um, when I was in college, I, I jumped into real estate and uh, had an opportunity to build that into what became one, uh, the top 1% or within that top 1% of professionals in the state of Texas and made an exit and, and now have endeavors in, uh, enterprise level technology and biomedical engineering and, and real estate, of course. And, consulting. And so, um, you know, we, we, we spend our time in a lot of really unique places, meeting all sorts of great people, but truly the, the life that we have right now and and, and how we're living today is really just the the full realization of that entrepreneurial spirit that was instilled in me at a young age. And so it's cool to be able to live it out <laughs> much like you're doing right with, with, with your content, um, you know, creating a, an environment that, that attracts great people. Um, but it began at a young age, Nathan. Honestly, it was it, it was pretty funny. You know how they say that the the future version of yourself is usually realized quite young. Um, for us, that that rang true. So, uh, I guess I can thank my parents for
0: that. <laughs> yeah, that that's really interesting that you grew up in an entrepreneurial household. How did that help you, other than helping you see the vision of your life goal was not to get a stable job from somebody? Your mm. your life goal was to build the venture, right? That would give you the stability. How else did it impact you having entrepreneurs for parents?
1: Well, you know, that's a a good question too because realistically, I remember watching, um, so for context, my mother was second in her class, Texas A&M University, English major, incredibly well-educated. My father graduated Baylor, lots of degrees. Um, he is uh, the one that that was really leading the charge on the entrepreneurial venture. Okay. And so seeing him, so I'm going to reference them independently, um, but I'm, I'm blessed to have a family that's together, which is which is definitely a blessing. Um, so my father watching him build and labor and go through those stages, because he started his company when my brother and I were younger. So we got to see that transition of, seeing something start at a table and then grow and then grow and then grow. And now he's got a quite a robust office space. And um, and then watching my mother play that role in her expertise of continuing to develop that infrastructure alongside him. Uh, the biggest impact was really twofold. First of all, it allowed me to recognize a healthy harmony in a relationship that's, that's possible through people that are uh, communicating well uh, that have uh, systems and structures of accountability in their life to ensure that you know issues in one area don't affect another. So I, I referenced the stable relationship because I think that is a blessing. And a lot of people, you know, they come from the struggle. Um, I didn't. I, I didn't. My, my family was middle class. My parents were together. Now they weren't wealthy. I wasn't going to school in a Rolls Royce, but um, we had food and we had shelter and we had uh, we had that. And the reason that I referenced that is because that allowed me to at a young age, identify what healthy relationships looked like. And then as I was growing a healthy relationship with uh, my spouse, now my amazing wife, Brittany, uh, a healthy relationship with our employees, with uh, business partners, some some were healthy, some some weren't, but understanding the nuances of each um, and then watching how my father moved as he was building. And I was able to emulate some of those things. So, you know, early on you get coaches, you get mentors, you get help. And it was very helpful to be able to think, okay, I remember, I remember seeing this. And, and, and so therefore I should adopt some of those memories and see how they play out in real life. And and, and it worked.
0: I love it. Uh, what What is the biggest success or biggest home run that you've hit in your career so far?
1: Well, um, God willing, we're about to hit another one that that'll blow this last one out of the water. But um, uh realistically, I think my real estate company so far was probably one of the biggest, um, that by the time when I had started, (laughs) I had no beard and I was much younger and I was not taken seriously and I had no business. So why should I be taken seriously? Um, but scaling that into what became, um, at the time, you know, multi eight figures in sales. And so real estate businesses evaluated through the sales in an, you know, annual year and, um, so to start from not being able to make an $800 a month apartment payment to, you know, turn into, you know, 30, 35, $40 million worth of business was, was, it was exciting. And by that time I was 25, 26. And so that was a really exciting, uh, step to be able to make those maneuvers at a younger age, learn a lot before a whole lot of, of, uh, uh I guess further, what's the word risk, whatever it would be. I, I didn't have kids. I wasn't married. And so, or I, uh-huh. I was towards the tail end of it, but, um, so I can leverage. Yet
0: you're. Leveraged I could be. Now. Yeah,
1: yeah. I could be dangerous. And so um, that was that was a big win. But you know, in reality, I'm I'm glad that the conversation isn't completely centered around that because um, we we all know people like this that get to be 70, 80, 90 years old, and they're always talking about that one thing they did when they were young. Yeah. And that was really cool. And I'm super excited about that. And it felt cool to get those accolades and those plaques. Um, I haven't been in real estate in years. And so now that we have an opportunity to build other opportunities and to get into other businesses and to see potential for other wins, um, that's really what I'm excited about. So yeah, that was fun and that was a big play, and, and there was an opportunity there to serve a lot of great families. But um, more than anything, that gave us the experience. And I, I say us, I'm, I'm really talking about my wife and I because she she run things, uh, she and I run things um, very tightly together. Um, gave us an opportunity to be well positioned for learning from our experiences, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and then turning that into an even more prosperous opportunity in the future. So that was exciting in the past, but more importantly, I'm, I'm excited for what's ahead.
0: Okay. What is your best monetization secret or strategy? Mm.
1: (laughs) Okay. So this is going to sound way backwards. So if you're listening, please don't pause in the middle of the statement, or you're going to think I'm freaking crazy. Um, don't, actually. That's literally it. Don't monetize. Um, don't focus on
0: monetization.
1: Don't focus on monetization because I'm not saying don't be profitable. I'm not saying don't focus on sales or money, but, but I'm, gonna, I'm speaking specifically to those that are looking at building um, as much profit as possible in the early stages. Focus on quality first and monetization second. And after your product becomes the market standard, switch. So I'll give you an example here. Um, we'll, we'll take what we do, the Obsessed Conference. Um, Obsess Conference is not a profitable event. I'm transparent about that. Grant Cardone can go make 15, 20, 30, 40, 80 million dollars on his conferences. That's cool. Um, we're going to be bit bigger than, than Cardone's event. Why? Uh, because I said, okay, what do I not like about other events? I don't like being pitched to from stage. I don't like motivation and not tactical. I don't like not being in the room with similar quality people um, uh, people have a very high moral and ethical quality. So, what are we going to do? We mapped out a ten-year plan for that event to lose money every single year, have an incredible event only focused on the quality of experience and the quality of business gained, and we have an eighty-five percent audience retention rate right now because of the quality. Now, the event gets bigger, so in theory, if we if we brought it down smaller, then it, it could be very very profitable. But The reason I'm saying that is the long-term game plan for that experience is not how much money can I squeeze from Nathan right now? No, no. The long-term game plan is if you're in the business of positively impacting lives and businesses, then the best data are the lives and the businesses that have grown significantly because of your relationship together. So if John Doe comes to the event and he loves it on year one, And I'm not trying to squeeze the little in year one and his business grows and he's back in year two and then year five and then year eight and then year 10. That is a better long-term strategy for that relationship. If you have that relationship with the hundreds and eventually thousands and tens of thousands of people that attend, that is a better, in my opinion, long-term strategy of monetization than on year one when we're nobody and we can barely squeak tickets out for $200. How can I get every dollar from that as opposed to I don't have to second guess charging $20,000 for a ticket because we're able to do this, this, and this. And I'm kind of pulling numbers out of thin air, but you see what I'm getting at, which is yeah. you focus on the quality first and the monetization second. It's a longer term strategy, but it'll be worth more in the in, in the long run.
0: Okay. Let me restate that. So, So what you're saying is don't focus on monetization first, focus on quality, or another word I use for that is value, right? Mm-hmm. Provide as much value as you can to your target audience, your customers. Mm-hmm and, and build that relationship and build that credibility. And, and your point is that is the strategy for achieving the greatest lifetime value out of those customers. Absolutely. It
1: is. Absolutely. It's just the first question is, are you here for the short run or the long run? Um, it's not a loaded statement, right? Some companies are really, really good. You know, the remember the fidget spinners, that was a nine month play. (laughs) I mean, realistically, that was a nine month play. Get in patent that, get out. Actually the, the, as a funny side note, the, um, uh, the group that had developed that um, that fidget spinner—you remember that way back in—I yeah, in, uh, sure. I remember the year—they um, didn't patent it. So whoops! <laughs> but um, that was a short-term play. Uh, but most businesses are long-term plays, right? The end—the ending goal of a business is just to either make a life for yourself and know that you'll never be market dominant. Be market dominant and eventually move into a SPAC and, and IPO, IPO on your own, or sell to a larger competitor. That's really that, that that's or fail technically, but I just don't think that one's an option. Um, those are the big options and the big play here. So if you're getting into business and you're thinking, okay, I want a long-term play, my question is how can you minimize all of your profit right now without losing profitability, without losing quality? How can you minimize profit right now without losing scalability, without losing, uh, you know, actual profitability don't, don't necessarily run at, at a loss. I believe everyone should be profitable, but how do you just keep that razor thin and then pour the rest of it back into your company for the three, the five, the eight, the 12 years, to the point to where now the company is worth significantly more. See, that's how we have hockey stick business. You kind of skirt along the bottom and then you go whoop straight up for those that that are just listening. My little whoop there was the top of the hockey sticks, <laughs> uh, but but then, then you shoot up. Um, but most companies say, okay, I have this idea. I want to earn as much as possible right now when you have no validity, no history and a small customer base. So what you're doing is you're playing in the small when in reality you're 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 negating your opportunity to play in the big leagues 8 to 10 years down the down the road
0: potentially. And if you look at some of the biggest and fastest growing companies of our business careers, the Googles and the Amazons, they followed that model. Right? Mm-hmm. Google did not focus on monetizing for for years and they built reach Amazon, the same thing. They operated for so long without making a profit and just reinvesting back in and trying to provide the highest quality, greatest value service they could. And as a result, those are both in positions where they, they have tremendous value. Well,
1: most people are trying to be fancy, right? I mean, look, beginning of the show, we're having a conversation. We're, um, you know, digging into the meat of, of just everything in, in your green room and, you um, Most people are just trying to be fancy and they want these really ornate, you know, plaques and cars and things. Um, I I don't, I don't want that. My, my mission is I want to live in presence with the people that I care about. I want to walk in love with others. I want to build really incredible market dominant, multi-billion dollar companies. That's what I care about. Um, I don't care about people knowing that I am Evan. Name up in lights. I don't care about that. Which sounds interesting because you think, oh well, you know, conference and you you do a lot of speaking and stages, whatnot. Those are distribution models achieving that mission, not because my name is up in lights. Um, The reason why that's important is because most people, when they start businesses, they start businesses because they have an idea that feeds their ego, not because they have this idea and they are willing to stand backstage. Now, this is not everyone, but this is a lot of people. When you are trying to be front and center, I'm successful and I have this business and I have this and this, and this is me and Mimi. What happens is you take so much time, energy, and resources away from the business to put the highlight on you so you can feel good that you never build good. What I'm saying is go behind the scenes, just take a step back. And for once, look around and say, if I can keep my head down and play quietly for five to eight years. If I'm okay walking into a room and not having people know who I am for five to eight to 10 years, that's how the name is going to be built during that time period. No one knew Arnold Schwarzenegger until he kept his head down and built literally himself and his body and his career. And now people can pronounce his crazy last name all over the world. And it's a similar methodology for, for as you're listening, what, what you're building not saying that you have an ego problem, gosh, I don't know you um, as a listener, but what I am saying is maybe look in the mirror and see, am I doing this for me and overcompensating right. for an insecurity or am I doing this because this is a mission, uh, a, a, a distribution method for achieving some type of greater mission. That, that's that's really the question we need to be asking ourselves.
0: I love it. Thank you so much. Um, on the show, we we obviously talk about monetization a lot. Mm-hmm and the ways to achieve that the the primary vehicle we teach to help people achieve huge monetization growth is a concept called leveraging tectonic shifts. So -hmm. think about in the world of geology, how you have two Mm -hmm. tectonic plates and when they move against each other, you can have massive destruction like Mm -hmm. earthquakes or volcanic eruptions, or you can have massive growth like mountain formation. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens in business, right? We're constantly being, disrupted we're constantly having to transform and uh through our careers we've seen this right you the shift from bricks and mortar to internet or the shift from yellow page to search engines or mm-hmm. the shift from, um, from desktop computers to smartphones right that's right that's right uh, so what do you think are some of the the most important tectonic shifts that we're going through today
1: mm, that's a good question and actually it's a straightforward answer um, like everything for the last twenty you know twenty five years, uh, technology, but but more importantly, I think the consumer is looking for um, more technology solutions from the brands that they're working with and and I know that's high level, but but I'll get granular here. What I'm talking about is, remember Nathan back in early 2000s when malls were dying all over the nation, right? Malls are dying. Millennials don't want to shop at malls. Well, yeah, they're gross. Malls are dying. Right. And, but what happened was is the thought process was everyone's going online and that didn't happen. What happened was online took a lot of market share, but then popped up these unique developments with boutique experiences and every store was different and craft coffee and unique food where the entire experience became a destination and not just a hub of convenience. Right. You, you probably remember all, yeah. all that craziness. Um, same thing in technology. So we went through this season where we have these like one-all solutions and these huge Microsoft suites. But, but now the interesting thing that happened much because of, of you know, the mobilization of technology, what you referenced, but the consumer wants unique, streamlined, beautiful experiences that connect them directly with the brand, right? So if I'm even shopping online, the first thing I'll do is I'll see if that brand, that website has an app. I'd rather engage with them in that environment, but it's the same thing in our in our in our businesses. Consumers are going to start demanding that you are able to connect with them in a technological way, regardless of if you're a technology business or not, because that's how they're used to communicating with the brands that they love. So I think the biggest shift we're seeing right now is going to be this outpouring of relevant to that brand, but not maybe it uh, market dominant relevant softwares uh, that will allow consumers to connect directly with those brands and kind of in a similar way that we saw with the mall real estate on this technological landscape with that real estate, create these little boutique experiences where you have apps that maybe do one or two things, but they do them beautifully. Or maybe they're apps that they only do one thing for one brand, but they do it beautifully, much in the way that we've seen with, um, I don't know, have you have any experience with the Cash App?
0: I haven't used the Cash App. Tell me about it.
1: So it's by a Square, which was a credit card processor. And I'm sure you're probably familiar with Square. Yes, but so. the Cash App is, is interesting because it's been around for you know 15 years, but or 10 years or whatever it is. I don't, I don't exactly know. But it's been around for quite a while since the early days of iPhone. And it is an app that does one thing and one thing only. Send money, accept money that's been sent. That's it. You have a keyboard, you type in the money, and here's sending it to you. That's it. Not like Vimeo where you can see the history and the friends and all that cute. No, no. It is you send money and you receive money. That's it. And it is consistently one of the most popular apps in the financial side of the app store. And so when when I say boutique and simple, I'm saying entire application infrastructure for one component. I think that shift is what we're going to see, that boutique experience, especially coming out of COVID over the next five and especially 10 years.
0: I love it. Uh, you wrote an article about how to charge what you're worth without seeming like a jerk. <laughs> Can you <laughs> yeah. talk with us a little bit about that? Give us some advice on yeah. how-
1: I mean, it's monetization nation. We got to talk a little bit about charging what you're worth, right? You, you're, yep. Look, some people compete on price and some compete on quality. Stop trying to be the cheapest. I mean, that's there's no better way to phrase it. Some compete on price, some compete on quality. If you compete on price, you're going to constantly be shopped out to the lowest bidder if you compete on quality, then you'll never have to justify your price. That's it. And that goes so, back to what we touched on. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Say what you're saying. Oh, I was saying that, that goes back to what we touched on earlier about the long-term play with developing the quality in the, in the front end, if that makes sense.
0: So when we charge more, several things happen, right? We, we attract a different type of a customer that probably- oh, yeah. Customer, we we're we're going to prefer working for anyway.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, we also, because we charge more, we're allowed to pro- provide a higher quality service. Absolutely, we to reinvest in better customer service and getting more team members and paying for higher quality team members so that we can provide better service to our customers. It mm-hmm. just becomes this this uh, what's the opposite of a vicious cycle? It's a, it's a, an ascending spiral. When yes. we charge well, we're able to provide better quality service and. Uh, it's just not worth it to be in the game of being the low cost provider. Maybe unless you're Walmart and you have some kind of distribution vehicle that you can afford, your that your cost structure allows you to do things cheaper. But if you don't have that, it just it really does not make sense to.
1: Well, and, and and that statement, yes, and and you are correct. I wanted to affirm that. But that statement: some compete on quality, some compete on price. My response was: I'm not trying to be the cheapest. But some companies are. Amazon came out with their, you know, Happy Belly or Good Bre- Belly brand. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it is their white-labeled grocery brand. So your carrots and your lettuce and your meats and your breads. And just like every other store, you know, you walk into a grocery store and they have their own brand of bread or milk or whatever. Um, but the interesting thing is is when I saw that, I thought that's kind of interesting. And I put it against more common brands that we're used to buying. You know, I want to look at the that brand versus a uh, 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 the fair life milk. And I want to look at this brand of waterproof. and every single time it had undercut every single brand in the Amazon store when it was their own brand. They are trying to be the cheapest and they're winning on that model uh, because they have the infrastructure to be able to take three cents off of this one to undercut the competition on a much, 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 much larger scale. And when, frankly, Amazon is a distribution and logistics company, not a product company. So that helps too. Um, so that wasn't a loaded statement because if you think, well, I am trying to be the cheapest, good, sell to the masses, live with the classes, be the cheapest, but be the biggest and the cheapest, not the smallest and the cheapest. That's called going out of business. If you believe that quality is important, then charge what you're worth and then prove that you're worth what you've charged through the experience with the customer. If I tell you, hey, in, for, in order for us to do this thing, this contract is $20,000 or I want to do you know, Christmas lights in your house and we're 10 times more expensive than other people, you have to prove why you're charging that or the market's gonna reject you. So it's not be full of it, it is if you are in fact worth that, then accept that as a charge. And if you wanna do something different, then accept that too, but you have to look at both. You have to look at both analytics.
0: Thank you so much, Evan, for sharing your stories and insights with us today. Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, instead of making profit our number one priority in the beginning, we should focus on providing value to our target audience first. We want to focus on building credibility relationships and quality first before we focus on monetization. Number two, when we are determining the prices of our products and services, we should look at what our competitors are charging while also paying attention to the value our customers perceive our products or services to be worth. Number three, as we increase our value, consumers are willing to spend more on our products even over a competitor with a cheaper price number four when we prioritize quality and value over profit monetization will probably come naturally if you want to learn more about evan or connect with him you can find him on linkedin or visit his website at evanstewart.co. you can also listen to his obsessed podcast for more insights from him and you can find links to each of those sites in the blog for this episode at monetizationnation.com do you want to be a better digital monetizer then please follow these channels to receive free digital monetization content. Number one, you can subscribe to the free monetization e-magazine at monetizationnation.com. Number two, you can subscribe to the Monetization Nation podcast and YouTube channel. And number three, please follow Monetization Nation on Instagram and Twitter. How do you provide high value and great service to your customers? Please join our private Monetization Nation Facebook group and share your insights with other digital monetizers. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success in your efforts to provide high value and great quality to your customers. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.